Um, we're going to read uh, some scripture now before Neil comes to speak. So uh, do grab a Bible if you have one. Thanks, Chris. So the reading this morning is from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 23. And if you have one of the New Church Bibles, that's page 1173. So Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfilment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Amen. Thanks very much, Liz. Let's we come to God's word and pray. <coughs> Father, as Paul prays for that church in Ephesus, then we pray ourselves this morning, that you would give us the spirit of wisdom, 
and revelation so that we may know you better. We pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened so that we may know the hope to which you called us and your incomparably great power. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, should Scotland be an independent country, yes or no? That was a question put to those living in Scotland very recently. And as you know, the uh, success was for the No campaign. For those who thought Scotland and the other countries in the UK would be, in the words of their campaign, better together, better as part of a union that's existed for over 300 years, in which the English can enjoy supporting Andy Murray at Wimbledon, and the Scottish can enjoy having a British football team to watch in the World Cup finals. Um, and I keep harking back to Andy Gemmell in 1978. If you were to sum up the theme of the book of Ephesians that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks, it would be about a union. Uh, not a union with other countries, not a, a union with um, other workers in the same industry, but a union with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the title of this whole sermon series is Together in Christ. And the individual sermon series are, are titles are all about what it means to be in Jesus Christ. This morning we're looking at the spiritual blessings in Christ. Uh, next time there will be new life in Christ. And then later we have united and reconciled in Christ. God's plans accomplished in Christ. To be in Christ, I don't know what do you think of when you, when you hear that expression? Um, it's not to be inside Christ in somehow, but it's, it's being united to Christ. And it helps if we think of some of the images used to describe that in the Bible. We have uh, Jesus the vine, and we are the branches. You know, we're, we're a part of the vine. Christ is a body, and his churches are the members of that body. Or Christ is a husband, and the church as the wife being united. And in each case, see, the image portrays a strong sense of unity and togetherness. Uh, it's a union which reflects the union of the members of the Trinity enjoy. And a union that they want to enjoy with humankind. This is what Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17. He said, As you are in me and I am in you, I pray that they may be in us. So this is not a, a casual acquaintance uh, this is an intimate relationship. Uh, Christians may have different views and gifts and experiences, but what they all have in common is that they are united with Christ. They are all in Christ. And in the opening verse, uh, obviously, as we see that Paul is writing his letter to a group of believers who describes as a faithful in Christ Jesus. Which describes them as God's holy people. I think one of the positive changes is sort of about going to a new NIV. This is one of the changes that comes, and this is the, the word previously used for saints, um, which has sort of con connotations, isn't it, of particularly holy people. But the word is actually all those who have been made holy in Christ. So it's probably more appropriate in many ways. Paul's writing to the believers in the city of Ephesus, which they found about thriving a commercial city. Um, probably of about 250,000 people, maybe about the size of Milton Keynes, but without all the, the roundabouts. <laughs> it was a religious city, 
many gods were, were worshipped, including the, the goddess Artemis, in whose honour a temple was built, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Having visited uh, the ancient ruins of Ephesus uh, a couple of years ago on holiday, um, I can recommend it as a place to go to. What you, you grasp when you're there is the sort of sheer size of the place. This is one of the, the main thoroughfares. You can see on the, the screen behind me as we flick on to the next picture. This is the, the restored library. Uh, we go on to the amphitheatre. That's a theatre you may remember in Acts 19, I think, where Paul nearly caused a, a riot as he wanted to speak in that theatre. Um, and finally, that's the road leading down to what would have been the seaport. It was a harbour city. So it's a, it's a city, um, quite a large city. In case you're wondering, the reason we're studying Ephesians this term is not so I can show my holiday snap. Um, well, not the main reason, anyway. Um, but coming back to the letter, that having got Paul's greetings out of the way, um, Paul goes straight into what he wants to say. Um, it's almost like he, he can't get it out quick enough. There's got so much he's just bubbling over with in terms of praise to God. And so that big section there, from verse 3 to verse 14, in the Greek, that is actually one sentence of 202 words. It is tense, um, and we're not going to be able to do it full justice this morning, but I do hope that we'll be able to unpack it a little bit and give you an idea of the things that are being talked about in here, so you can take it away and uh, look at it in your personal devotions this week. Because what it does is it takes us back to what God has done for us. And if you still maybe think that Christianity is like all the other religions, it's all about how we can be sufficient to earn God's favour, then the book of Ephesians is really going to put that uh, suspicion to rest, because it is all about God and his grace. Paul's opening sentence begins with, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Last time we did a book of Deuteronomy, and a lot of the blessings there we saw um, that God uh, lavished on his people were material, they were physical blessings. But here we clearly we see these blessings are spiritual, they're in the heavenly realms. There is a, a spiritual world. The world is not visible, um, but in that world there's a battle going on between the, the heavenly armies and the armies of Satan. Um, we may think it's a battle that doesn't concern us, but we are actually right in the middle of that battle. And at the end of the letter, we will see later on that Paul tells you, Ephesians, to put on the whole armour of God, because you are in battle here, stand against the devil's schemes. But Paul at the start is, is writing to the Christians in Ephesus with good news. He's reminding them they have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And what we see in this passage this morning is that all three members of the Trinity are involved in that work, in those blessings. So we're going to have a little look at uh, the different roles they play. And the first one we're looking at is God the Father. What does God the Father do? Well, he's the one who initiates our salvation. What has he done? We'll have a look at uh, what it says there in verse 4. He chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. And in verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. Now, what both of those have in common is this concept of choosing, uh, electing, uh, predestining, uh, which is a hard concept to grasp, isn't it? 
Um, because we're also told, well, we need to choose to follow Jesus. Um, we need to put our faith in him, we need to seek him. So he's doing a choosing here, you know, and what about those who are not chosen? It throws up all these questions. It's the big issue um, of divine sovereignty on the one hand, and human responsibility. How do those two go hand in hand? Well, we can't get into real detail of that this morning, we just haven't got the time, but if you want to talk about that, well, feel free to, at any time to come and have a chat with Mark and myself. I would like to make a couple of comments though. Um, because this is clearly a mystery. It's not something we can find a nice, a nice sort of uh, packaged, uh, simple solution to you. But it is here in the Bible. It's here, it's elsewhere in the Bible. Um, and so God has revealed it to us for a purpose. And what it does emphasize is his love for us. It doesn't just say he predestined us, but it says in love, verse 5, he predestined us. And he didn't just choose us when he saw what we were like, you know, how lovable we were. He chose us, it says, before the creation of the world, before we were born, before our parents were born, before anyone was born. This is an imperfect illustration I know, but think of a married couple who are planning to have a child. Um, they have no idea what that child will turn out like, um, whether it be a boy or a girl, whether it will be um, healthy or handicapped whether it will be bright or, or not so bright, uh, whether it will be good-looking or not so good-looking, whether it will be perfectly behaved or rebellious. But they will choose to love him, whatever that child turns out like. They will choose to sacrifice their lives for their love of that child. Now God chose us in Christ, and that means he put us and Christ together, long before we were born, so that we'd be holy and blameless in his sight. And unlike human parents, God knew that we would be unholy, that we would be full of blame, that we would be deserving of his judgment. He knew there would be nothing in us that would merit his love. But he still decided to choose us and to love us. In the same way that he chose Israel, not because of anything that they had done. He chose them um, to love them. That is unconditional love, which is an amazing thing, isn't it? And it's a cause for humility, it's a cause for praise. We're not chosen like someone who's gone through loads of auditions, um, in the X-Facts or whatever, or somebody who's been training hard and playing for their club and wants to be selected for the country, that's the highest accolade. We're somebody who's plucked out of obscurity and chosen and loved. He chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. We are holy in our standing before a holy God because we're united with Christ. Another purpose of our election, again, to give God praise, was to become his children. He says he predestined us for adoption to sonship. If we're a child of God, we're not just another created being. We are a child. We have a special status before God. We have great privileges as children, we have direct access to our Father. When we say the Lord's Prayer, I think sometimes we miss what that would have sounded like to one of Jesus' disciples. When they ask him, Lord, tell us how to pray. And he starts out by saying, pray like this, our Father. That is saying you can speak directly to the God of the universe because he is your Father. You can ask him for things because as a Father he wants to give you good things. 
And it's the change of status here that's key, that you go from somebody who has no father, who has no relationship, no rights, or, or anything, to someone who has amazing privileges, amazing rights, somebody who one day will have a great inheritance. Some of you will know um, Chris at um, Cornerstone. He's been involved in setting up a, uh, uh, a charity called Home for Good. And the idea is to uh, encourage churches to promote adoption and fostering uh, as part of our calling to serve the world. And the thinking is that when we adopt and love children that are not our biological children, when we treat them with the same affection, the same inheritance, the same blessing that we do with our own children, then we're showing something of the heart of the Father, the truth of the Gospel as we welcome them into our family. God the Father chooses us to be holy and blameless. He predestines us for sonship. Well, how is all that possible, though? Well, the answer is there in verse 5. He did it through Jesus Christ. Which brings us on to him and his role in our salvation, because he was the one who achieved our salvation. He's the one who made it all possible. And verse 7 tells us exactly how he did that. In him, in Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption and forgiveness, the two go together. Redemption is to be delivered, to be released through the payment of a price. So, um, in ancient times, slaves would be freed if you paid them a price to their, to their, to the slave owners for, for their release. Which does raise the question, what is it that we need to be released from? What do we need to be delivered from? Well, there are two things really. One is we need to be released from the one who has power over us. What time was the slave owner? The slave was released from the slave owner. But also we need to be released from the penalty that is hanging over us from all the wrongs that we have done. In other words, we need to be released from the power of sin and we need to be released from the penalty of sin. Newspaper reporters said there are possibly 500 UK citizens who have uh, gone over to fight for ISIL in Iraq and uh, Syria. The report that some of them have become disillusioned, they want to, to return home, but they're afraid of what awaits them if they come back. They need in some ways to be rescued from the influence of ISIL over them. But if they're to be rescued, they still need to face the penalty for the crimes they have committed. They don't simply disappear, they don't vanish. Justice has to be done. In Christ, we are redeemed and we are forgiven. We are freed from the power of sin over our lives. We're also forgiven for the things we did when we rejected God. They say, well, where is the justice from that? Surely a price had to be paid, a penalty had to be paid. And it did. But the price was paid by Jesus. The price, it says here, was the blood, the life of Jesus, which he gave up so that we can go free, so we can be forgiven, that we no longer need to face eternal punishment. And that's what we're going to be celebrating this morning in the Lord's Supper. That is what that is about. I think it's difficult sometimes, isn't it, to how one man's death could be sufficient to pay the ransom fee to the whole of humankind, both today and the past and in the future. 
He wasn't just one man. And Jesus Christ is God. There's no trace of sin in him. The value of his life is almost impossible for us to really grasp. Maybe you're a Christian here this morning and you're just struggling with your, your previous sins. Well, let me reassure you that there's nothing that you could have done that the price of Christ's death has not paid for. The Bible is littered with people who have been forgiven for terrible sins. Paul is the one who's writing this letter. He was one who went about murdering Christians. Let's pray that God would help us to understand that we've been forgiven, but also that we would experience the power of his love. Because as it says here, we have been redeemed and forgiven in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. That is his love. Well, God the Son achieved our salvation. And thirdly, God the Holy Spirit assures us of our salvation. It's something when we hear about election to think, well, does that mean there's nothing for me to do? I just sit back and wait to be chosen? But we do have a responsibility as well. I didn't look at verse 13 here because um, although our salvation is according to the will of God, there is something that we do in the process of that. Verse 13 says, You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. To be saved, we need to hear the message. It's what we call the gospel, the message of truth. And that's a responsibility for us as a church. We need to make that gospel clear to people. We need to make sure people hear the gospel. And so evangelism is important. But it's because of God's will that evangelism has any chance of success. Because the proclaiming of the gospel is a means by which God will save people. So we have a responsibility to tell the truth but if we're not yet a Christian, we have a responsibility to hear the truth. To not avoid it, to listen to it. And ultimately to believe in it. We need to have faith that it is true. That Jesus did pay the price for us. That we are truly saved. That our eternal future is secure. We need to ask God for that faith. But if we have done all that, how do we know if we have been saved? What if you think, I'm oh, really not quite sure whether I am a Christian or not? And that is where the role of the Holy Spirit comes in. Because it is he who assures us of our salvation. And he does that by putting a seal on us. I'm looking at what it says. It says in verse 13, When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Putting a seal on something in those days would be to say, this is mine. Everybody will know who that seal belonged to. This thing here belonged to me. And some ways we still do that today, don't we? We, uh, we write our names on things. You know, if uh, Jeff were here, he'll be telling you to write your name in your Bible. Make sure you do that. To show who it belongs to. If we're going travelling, we'll put a luggage label on our bag so when they come around the carousel we know which is ours because these days they all look the same, don't they? by sealing us with the Holy Spirit God is saying he or she is mine they belong to me keep your hands off them and that is a great 
assurance for us. Because if we put our trust in Jesus Christ, if we've asked for his forgiveness, if we are therefore in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. Jesus said before he ascended into heaven to his disciples, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. I will not leave you as orphans. You will receive power when he comes on you. The power to live a life in Christ. That doesn't mean we make no effort, but our effort is enabled, is empowered by the Spirit living in us. People can ask you, can you lose your faith? Can you, can you lose your salvation? In many ways that's the wrong question to ask because if God has put his seal on us, then that question you're asking is actually, can God lose his child? Can God lose something that is his? We didn't choose ourselves, we didn't adopt ourselves or seal ourselves, he did. And that is a great insurance. We can take great comfort from that fact that what he started, he will bring to completion. This is why the Spirit is also called a, a deposit. He, he is guaranteeing our inheritance. It means we've already received him. We can experience his power. But there is much more to come. Well, we could say a lot more about that, but so we haven't got time this morning. I'd like to finish before we come to the Lord's Supper by just commenting briefly on how Paul responds to all these amazing spiritual blessings he's laid out for the Ephesians. How do we do that? Because we've heard a lot about blessing this morning. The blessing of being chosen being holy, being redeemed, being forgiven, being sealed. And you may ask, why has God done all that? He tells us in this passage two, two reasons. Really. First of all, it's in accordance with his pleasure and his will. For God, it is a great joy to love us and adopt us, to choose us. It's not a, a burden, it's not an obligation, it's a joy. He loves it. And secondly, it's to the praise of his glorious grace. Three times God tells us that he does all this to the praise of his glory, or his glorious grace. Mark School talks about cat theology and dog theology. Apologies to any cat lovers here. I'm going to make myself unpopular. Um, we could think, well, if God has done all that for me, I must be a pretty special person. Look at me. That is the cat theology. I'm an amazing and valuable cat. Well, we keep saying, actually, if God has done all that for me, I must have a pretty special master. I must have a pretty special God. The dog theology. I'm not showing any preferences between the two. But what we're saying is, look at all God has done. Look at all he promises to do. And let's tell people how glorious he is. And so having reminded them of their privileged position. Paul moves immediately to prayer in verses 15 to 23. And his prayer is to thank God for them and to pray that they would know God better. That they would know the hope to which he's called them, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for those who believe. The same power, he says, to you to raise Jesus from the dead, to seat him at his right hand, in his heavenly realm, as far above all other rule and authority, power and dominion.